0: Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership with Scott Miller podcast, now the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership, where we distribute each Tuesday both audio and video interviews, where I'm privileged each week to sit in this chair and interview some of the brightest, most interesting people in the world, whether it's uh, Emmanuel Acho, Matthew McConaughey, Elizabeth Smart, Deepak Chopra, Liz Wiseman, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, Seth Godin, Stephen M. R. Covey, Brene Brown. Let's see, Robin Sharma, um, Ambassador Huntsman, General McChrystal, Doris Kearns Goodwin, you name it. We have interviewed them all. And today our guest is gonna knock your socks off. Before we go there, we each year also produce a book about this podcast. I'm the author with Harper Collins. It's called Master. Mentors, Volume 1 and Volume 2 are out in paperback, also in digital audio and video on lit video books, where each year I am privileged to write a short, easy, breezy chapter about 30 of my favorite guests, people that have had a transformational insight shared on the podcast that I think is worthy of a little bit further um, uh, writing on it. Pick up a copy of Master Mentors, Volume 3, coming out with 30 new guests, 30 new stories in the fall. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Thomas. You know him as the force of nature, perhaps the world's most contagiously positive person. His recent book is called U O U. And he's joining us today from his studio in Michigan. Dr. Thomas, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you for having me, super
1: excited. As you know, Stephen and Covey, all you guys' work has transformed all of our lives. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just recently had uh, my team on, of course, this book his son helped uh, produce, uh, and that of course, changed my life, the speed of trust and just really helping leaders leaders understand how critical character, integrity, you know, and all that stuff is. And so what an honor to go from you know um, his books, you know, his son's work, you know, to actually being you know with you guys today. so um man' super excited to be here.
0: Eric, you're a clock sack. Thank you for calling out Dr. Covey and his son, Stephen M.R. Covey. His book, The Speed of Trust, is a seminal book. The 13 Behaviors of High Trust Leaders Makes Us All Better People. Today, we're going to get into just a couple of topics. You have a broad ranging set of passions and expertise, but today I want to talk really around two big topics, and that really is about victim mentality and discovering your superpowers. We have about 30 minutes together. Eric, for those last few people that just crawled out from a cave where they were on sabbatical from the world for the last 25 years, would you introduce yourself to them and let everyone know your journey to become now the author of UOU, Ignite Your Power, Your Purpose, and Your Why?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I was one of those kids, unfortunately, who, um, you know, had a victim's mentality, you know, and didn't value, you know, appreciate uh, the hand I was dealt, as you know, uh, Doc teaches us in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, when the book starts off, you talk about perspective. It's like, hey, you, you got these individuals who are upset with this guy on the train. and It's kind of like, hey, why is he letting his kids run all over the place? Like, what's going on? And it's this thing of perspective. It's like, hey, perspective is everything. And so that was one of the books in my journey that really helped me realize, here, nobody is born with a perfect life. You know, everybody has a hand. Everybody has to play their hand. So I was... My mom was 17 when she got pregnant, you know, south side of Chicago. My grandmother had 14 kids, you know, three bedroom house, one bathroom. Nobody had careers. People didn't graduate from high school. My father was a high school dropout, wasn't in my life. Poor me, my mother lied about my biological father. I'm gonna run away from home, drop out of school. And, um, you know, one of the cool things about dropping out of school and being homeless is, you know, you're not protected by your mom anymore. Like you're dealing with real life. And so life hit me like, hey, you're eating out of trash cans, you're living in abandoned buildings. And that's rough in the winter of Detroit. You know, you're talking uh, wind chill factors that leave it uh, minus three, 12 inches of snow. You know, reality kind of hit me. and was like, hey, you made some very poor decisions. And either you could play this victim role. It's your mom's fault uh, for having you so young, not being married. It's your biological father's fault for not being in your life not being a role model, not giving you the things you need to start life off. Or you can deal with the fact that you've made some choices and it's not the greatest habits in the world. And you need to release, relinquish some of the habits you currently have. And you need to embrace, you know, the the habits of highly, you know, effective people. And so that's what my journey has been. And that's what I teach. Like, hey, guys, there's some just traits of the greats. They aren't people who were born gods. They don't necessarily have advantages that you don't have, per se, uh, but they have habits that you don't have. And you need to embrace those habits if you want to have a successful life.
0: You know, Eric, my apologies to you for not not being able to summon any legitimate endorsers for your book. These names like Chris Paul (laughs) and... Michael Jordan and Deion Sanders and Ed Milette. how did you become such a superstar and be the center of this amazing group of influencers? Chris Paul, Michael Jordan, Deion Sanders, Ed Millette. what did you do to change your life from a victim in Michigan to being homeless to now being a worldwide sensation of a batch yeah, of positivity? Yeah. Well, What happened?
1: Yeah, you, you know, again, I said it. I went from a victim to a victor. You know, it's about taking full responsibility. And one of the things that I've learned is that you attract who you are. If you're five, you attract the five. If you're a 10, you attract a 10. And so I literally, from books, like, honestly, you know, I, one of the things I tell people is I'm super transparent. It's the, it was literally the reading of books that allowed me to see Yo, these people that we look up to, they're only great because they they're doing great stuff, you know, and the stuff that they're doing is stuff that you can do. You know, so for me, I realized personal development was a key. Like everybody that I studied, I noticed they didn't talk about their mother and dad, they didn't talk about other people. Like they literally talked about, study, you know, got engaged and involved and traits and habits and characteristics, like however you look at it, that that were about improvement, about getting better, about developing. And so when I got on this journey of self-assessing, you know, and I stopped talking about what my mom wasn't doing, my father wasn't doing, you know, my, my, my wife or my boss, and I really started daily evaluating myself, what's working, what's not working, what are you doing that's phenomenal, you know what? It what? What are the things that you're doing to self sabotage? And as I began that journey of self assessing and developing myself personally, I, I woke up one day and I was with you know the people that you mentioned on the back of the book, you know, as, as well as other individuals. And so for me, it was it was ownership. It was personal development. You know, it was a hey, e. There are certain opportunities you have, man. Take advantage of those opportunities and stop looking at what you don't have. Stop looking at. You didn't have your dad in your life and your mother wasn't married. Your mother didn't finish uh, or go to college at that time. Your mom doesn't have a college degree. Like, don't look at what you don't have. You grew up in Chicago, the inner city of Detroit. Stop looking at what you don't have. Look at what you have and take full advantage of the opportunities that are in front of you. And I'm telling you, and I mean, you know this, but people treat you different when you're a victim. They seem to run away from But when you take ownership, when you're a person of integrity and character, you say you're wrong when you're wrong, you ask for help when you need help, you know, and and when you take like full ownership of yourself, man, people treat you different. The doors they open up for you are different. Just life is different. Same Air Thomas. My dad didn't come back in my life. My mom, you know what I'm saying, didn't uh, rehab me at 28. You know, like nothing changed. I, I didn't grow up in Beverly Hills. I was still from the same places, the same circumstances, and situation. But when I changed my perspective and I started doing the daily work and I started to check Eric Thomas and demand more of Eric Thomas and hold Eric Thomas accountable, man, my life took off, man. It took off.
0: Eric, I want to talk about this concept of victim mentality because I think it's something that we talk about others meaning like they have a victim mentality or they're yeah. a victim yeah. but I think we all have a victim mentality at some point in our lives and I'd like you to maybe flip the script for a few moments and yeah. convince everyone to quote you that the world is not conspiring against you that yeah. you are conspiring yeah. against yourself can or you give you. us all yeah. some practical advice on a recognizing that we in fact also have a victim mentality and How do we acknowledge it, identify it, address it, and move beyond it? Stop accusing others of having it and acknowledge when you yourself have it.
1: Yeah, yeah. here's my deal. You know, um, we don't live in a perfect world and I'm not trying to, uh, uh, you know, make the statement that we are, but here's what we are. We live in a world that we control. You know, like we literally live in a world we control. The beautiful thing about it is, it's not your words, Scott, that dictate my life. Like it's not what you're saying Every day or, you know, now that you know me, if you were to say something tomorrow about me, good or bad, it's not your words that shape my destiny. It's not your words that shape my life. Like, it's not the words of my teacher or my principal. Let's just be honest. Like, okay, let's say it's high school. I'm only going to be with them for four years. Let's say it's college. I'm probably going to be with that teacher one semester. It's like who is with Eric Thomas the most? You know, like who affects Eric Thomas the most? Like the words that Eric Thomas is in, what words does he hear the most? It's definitely not my uh, English one-on-one professor. You know, it's definitely not my trigonometry professor. Like, those are not the words that I'm hearing daily. I'm hearing my words more than anybody. Like, I'm in my in my mind, I'm hearing the stuff that I say. You know, um, you'll never finish school. You'll you'll never be successful. You never. I'm not hearing what uh, somebody says about me. Now, uh, maybe. I am taking what they're saying and reinforcing it, but it's definitely not their words that I'm hearing every day. Now, maybe they said something I'm embracing and I keep saying it over and over, but at the end of the day, I woke up and realized I erred. It's not what your teacher thinks. Like, I don't think you're gonna graduate from high school. It has nothing to do with what he thinks. I went from a GED to a PhD. When I said to myself, you don't have a learning disability? Like, so what? The teacher says, or whoever your counselor was, they saw some trait or characteristic that made them think you had a learning disability. No, you know, this is funny. My daughter, uh, I didn't realize it, an embarrassing moment as an educator. uh, I I sent my daughter to a school uh, to study the SAT, ACT, uh, and they came back to me and said, unfortunately, you know, your daughter has uh, a learning disability when it comes to math and science. And my daughter went on to take the SAT, didn't score phenomenally, but her grades were great. She got into Michigan State University and pretty much graduated in three years. And my daughter works for the foundation now. I went and got her master's. And some child said to her, yo, I read in your book, your dad's book, or heard some message that you had a learning disability. Like, how did you overcome that? And my daughter said, I never said I had a learning disability. That was the person that tested me. What I heard was, I have to study a little longer. What I heard was, I have to study harder. What I heard was, I need more resources. I didn't hear I had a learning disability. (laughs) I graduated from Michigan State, the same school that accepted me on academic provision that I graduated quicker than most kids who finished school greater than I did and got better scores than me. So my daughter's point was, I never said that about me. That's what they said about that. I never embraced that. So when I got to a point where I was like, yo, E, one, you have to acknowledge there are some areas that you're not as naturally as gifted as others, but then there are some areas that you're naturally gifted. You gotta work, regardless if you're naturally gifted or you're not. Gifted. Like you gotta stop procrastinating. Like you gotta get up and you gotta finish what you start. And you gotta. And when I got to a point where I stopped saying my mother didn't do this and my father didn't do that, now maybe honestly at eight or twelve, okay. But I was like 19 years old. I was 21 years old when I got kicked out of college on academic probation. So it just got to a point, Scott. Was like, yo, et, what are you doing right? What are you doing wrong? take ownership and the world may conspire against you or not. I don't know. But at the end of the day, you are the captain of your own ship. As you've heard before, you are the author and the executive producer of your own life and good or bad. Sometimes cheerleading is bad. Oh, Eric the Great. I don't need that right now. I need a critic. I'm writing a book. I need I need an editor. So so there are times in life where t- people will cheerlead or critique for you at the end of the day. Neither one of them are as important as what do you do? What are you doing? What choices are you making? How are you using your 24 hours? And just remember, at the end of the day, man, it's the choices that we make that determine our lives, not the choices or the words of other people that design our lives.
0: I could just end this interview right here because that was a powerful 10 minutes. It's so very true. As you were speaking, Eric, your friends call you ET, I was thinking about all the relevance that what you just said in my own life, right? How many things have been said about me from the outside world that were not accurate or true and how I, early in life, let them impact my self-esteem, my self-confidence, my trajectory. Uh, I want to pivot to this idea of superpowers. And how does someone find their superpower? And before you answer that, I'd like you to connect it back to this, this uh, call to action you have around kind of tuning out the outside world, the external world you call it, because sometimes that can lead you down the wrong path of what aren't your Absolutely. superpowers. Let's spend some time just listening to you talk about the process of finding and igniting a person's superpowers.
1: And, and you know what, I think we all know, you know, or at some point we were introduced to our superpower by some person or some circumstance or situation, some environment, you, you know, but I think, you know, for me, I remember playing the violin when I was a kid. Oh, Scott, I loved everything about the violin, I, everything. I love string instruments. Um, to this day, I can listen to, you know, uh, some classical music with a violin or a harp. You know, I just love strings. Right. And I, I remember being so excited about playing the violin. I remember being so excited about, you know, the, the the little baby orchestra that we had, you know, at our middle school. And um, I remember carrying, you know, the, the case with the violin, bringing it home. We had like, this was back in the day when they had music programs. So your parents would have to pay for it. You know, you got, you wanted to do music, you do music. And I remember walking home from school, you know, being from the urban community. And I remember a couple of my friends looking at the violin and laughing at it. And I remember Scott that day, me not feeling the same about the violin as I felt before the outside world knew I was playing the violin. And and being ridiculed. Oh, you stand after school, you're not playing football? You're not playing basketball? Oh, Eric, uh, he's playing the violin. Oh, yeah. And the community that, rather geographically or, you know, I chose these people because, you know, we shared common interests or whatever it was, I cared so much about what they thought about the violin that I put the violin down. Now, years later, look a little bit more older, more mature, you know, uh, I'm at a church and they're doing a week of prayer and they give me an opportunity to speak. I promise you, they told us like a month before. I must've practiced every day, all day. I read stuff, I listened to other speakers. And I remember when I got on stage and spoke at that church, I'm definitely not saying it was my best message ever. I'm not saying that they would say it was my best message ever. But you know when it's your superpower because it comes so natural to you, and it may be difficult for others. Like, it's you, you you, eat it, sleep it, dream it, breathe it. Like, you don't even have to do anything. It's like just the thought of it, and boom, you're great at it. You're good at it. And so for the first time, you know, I got on stage. I had a mic. I spoke, you know, the crowd. They loved me. You know, the, the Bible school teacher, Sunday school teacher, you know, they, uh, you know, gave me great reviews. And it, it, from that day forth, I was like, yo, this is what i speaking. is just what I do naturally. Like most people get on stage and, you know, they have this fright and this fear. Now I'm a little nervous. I do have butterflies, but the type of butterflies that, you know, ah, just give me a great feeling. The goosebumps give me a great feeling. And I knew it came natural to me. It was easy for me. It wasn't something I had to study or practice or do or nobody had to pull a pride. It just, it came natural. So I think we all know what our superpowers are. I think sometimes in life, when we say our superpower out loud and people don't respond to it in the way we respond to it, I think we end up putting it down. But again, to me, it's something that you do. It comes easy, it's natural. People love it when you do it. People are drawn to you because you do it. I I think that's what, I think that's how you know what your superpower is. And it just electrifies you. You can do it all day and, and not, you know and be energized you don't you don't um you don't you don't get drained you don't you know you you don't feel bad about it like you can just do it and do it and do it and so for me i think that's how you know you're a superpower and if you don't let people talk you out of it and you keep doing it just worlds begin to open up to you because of
0: it you know eric since i read your book some time ago most of these viewers and listeners know that i'm a, a parent with my wife stephanie to three young boys we have three sons 8 10 and 12 And I consistently reinforce in them what I think their superpowers are. And superpowers aren't always speaking on stage or writing books or big things. Mm -hmm. Superpowers can be empathy. They can be awareness. It can be reading the body language or the emotions of someone else. Not every superpower is this big, grandiose, life-changing thing. Absolutely. I'd like you to talk about the, the nexus of... Finding your superpower and combining it with your why. This is an important part of your book, is putting these two things together. Because I think Uh, this says easy, but it does hard. Not everyone knows what their why is, their their mission, their purpose, their passion. And not everyone knows what their superpower is. Can you give us some practical steps or techniques, tips on how you find your superpower Mm -hmm. and combine it with your why? Yeah,
1: I, I think you find your superpower in your environment. Right, so it was funny. I was talking to uh, you know pretty much what I call our CEO of our company, uh, CJ, and I was telling CJ like, okay, CJ, we're gonna um, you know buy this building and we're gonna allow you know people to come in and get trained or whatever. And um, I've got this person supporting, this person supporting. He was like, "E, man, I feel you. Like I know you need to, you know, duplicate yourself. I've read the books." He said, "Eric, but you got to be careful because it's not your speaking that draws people to you." It's the fact that you really care and love and are concerned about the interest of people almost to the same extent or greater than they are for themselves. And he was like, a lot of people, they can speak. They have the gift of, you know, gab. They're orators. But the heart that you have for people, the fact that you love people and you want to see people do well. And, you know, if you're at the airport, you stop and speak to everybody. Like, you give everybody eye contact and you make them feel... And that 30 seconds to three minutes that they're actually talking to you, that there's nobody else in the world, that nobody else matters. And so, yes, I do it professionally now. But when I was a bus boy at the Olive Garden or when I was a cash register at McDonald's or when I flipped burgers, you know, at Burger King, you know, or, 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 when, I, or when I was the big brother to Janico, my sister, you know, my middle sister. I have another sister, Mallory, who's 14 years younger than me. You know, but as a neighbor, when I'm helping everybody in the neighborhood and buying, you know, every kid in the neighborhood, you know, a, a Christmas gift, or I'm going up to their school, or, you know, I'm praying with America. And CJ was like, yo, Eric, you, you, yeah, you speak well, but like you said, Scott, you're caring, you, you you empathize with people that's on a whole other level. You know, so for me, I think when you figure out what that thing is you do. doing, like you said, it could be smile. People say all the time when I walk into a building, I don't even know these people. They're like, why are you smiling like that? Like, you have such an infectious smile. You got such a big smile. When you walk in the room, I'm only five nine. When you walk in the room, there's this big presence when you walk in the room. Like, we thought you were taller than because of what we saw on YouTube and your passion and your power. So, so for me, my why is, how can I use caring to help people get through cancer? Well, how can I use my caring... To help people who have failed a, a, a bar exam, how can I give them hope, you know, through care or hope through my words? Or well, how can I help a person who lost their father, you know, and they're thinking about. And so my why became, how can I take the gift that I have and make the world of the people whose world I'm in a better world? So for my wife, you know, when she was diagnosed with MS, you know, and the doctor was saying, hey, the work that you do as a registered nurse, you know, breast and cervical cancer. You probably shouldn't do that anymore. It's kind of stressful. And so, for me, say, hey, I'm gonna get on the stage, and the stage is not gonna just be about speaking. But I'm gonna put you in a position where you can retire, work for the church. This is gonna give me an opportunity to put my kids through school. We just sent um, 20 kids to Dubai, you know, for over a week from some of our urban communities to change their lives. So I'm using, I'm using my gift. We sent 25 kids to the Super Bowl last, well, this year, to the Super Bowl uh, in LA, you know? And so it's like, how do you take what you do and make maybe your mom's life better, your dad's life better, your siblings' life better, your students, your teachers, you know, your peers? Like, how do you take what you do and really make the world a better place? And I think once you figure out what your superpower is, it's definitely connected to helping someone or something get better.
0: Eric, let's talk about comfort. When I am asked how I've achieved any success in my life, to the degree I have, I'll say, you know, I'm like the master of self-disruption. I, I, I have a communications uh, undergraduate education. I've been in sales, sales leadership, marketing. Yes, yes. I'm an yes. author of six books and a column and a podcast and a radio program and product development. And I just constantly disrupt myself. Yes. And, 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 and I don't... A few weeks ago, we had someone write in and said, you know, for 17 weeks, I have really tried to like your podcast, but I just can't find myself to like the host, meaning me. Mm, and I'm thinking, it took, you, it took you 17 weeks to figure out you right. don't like me? <laughs> it was kind of funny. <laughs> but my point yeah. is, I think one of the things I've done well in life yeah. is to quote you in the book. To get to that next level, you got to learn to get uncomfortable. To get comfortable being yeah. uncomfortable yeah. riff yeah. on that yeah so so
1: guys go with me if you don't mind but I, I studied the crocodile, which is a ferocious you know animal, believe it or not right you see it and sometimes it's in a while how it will even you know attack a lion right a leopard right But one of the things I studied is he's at its most vulnerable moment after it eats. So they were saying if there's ever a time an alligator, crocodile, if there's ever a time like you can dismantle them, you know, with your bare hands, is after they've eaten, they go into this comatose state, you know, that allows them, uh, well, really takes away their superpower. And so what I discovered about man is that sometimes when we're at our greatest level of success, we're at our greatest danger, right? Because we get relaxed and comfortable. And what we don't realize is that in comfort, you're actually not your best self. You know, I I find that I generally pick up weight after, you know, uh, uh, nine months of, you know, working out. And then once it gets cold, you know, it's the the winter months here in Detroit. You know, you're not out and about as much. You're kind of in the house, watching TV, probably eating more. I find that I've had a successful year and now I'm kind of, Scott, like, hey, I deserve to treat myself and treat myself turns into one or two days of eating junk food or whatever I'm eating. And one or two days not working out, it turned into a week, it turned into a month. And it's like, honestly, when I'm not where I want to be in terms of my ideal weight, when I'm not where I want to be in terms of my ideal diet, when I'm not where I want to be in t- terms of you know my career, i found that those are man, when I was homeless, oh man, ET was a bad man. You know, when I got kicked out of college or academic probation, oh, man, ET was a bad man. I noticed that at some of my lowest points, I go to hardest. And so what I told myself was, Eric, when you get to some of your best points in life, like just create chaos, like you said. Just create it. Why? Because sometimes success creates comfort, and sometimes comfort doesn't bring the best out of us. Sometimes comfort doesn't make us the best version of ourselves. Sometimes comfort doesn't create the best ideas. Sometimes comfort doesn't bring the greatest level of creativity, but i found that sometimes when life is not going the way you think it should go, you find a way to be your best version. And I just said to myself, hey, instead of letting life create those moments, like you said, Scott, Eric, create your own. So I'll give you guys an example. When I finished the four year degree, I don't know that I needed a master's degree to be a motivational speaker, uh, but then when I got the master's degree, I said, hey, I'm going to get the Ph.D. I don't know I need a Ph.D. to be a motivational speaker, but I needed something to wake up to. I, I needed something to want me to get dressed. I needed something to give me energy to go to bed and want to wake up the next day. I needed something to get me on the treadmill. I needed something to give me life. And so after the Ph.D., everybody's like, what you going to do, E.T.? I said the Nobel Peace Prize. Why? Well, Martin Luther King is a hero. He got it. Uh, Mother Teresa has it, Gandhi has it, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela. So I said, I want the Nobel Prize. Somebody said, Eric, it's been years and you haven't gotten it. I said, no, 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 no. It's not the actual prize I want. It's the hunt. It's the hunt. It's It's the exploring, the discovering. It's the going after it. It's the getting up in the morning and figuring out what do I need to do in order to make that happen. It's having a goal in front of me. So I just find that when you don't have a goal, when you don't have something to hunt, when you have nothing to shoot for, you're in this place called comfort, it can get a little dangerous. And no, Scott we're not saying don't enjoy life and don't enjoy some of the rewards that come with the work that you put forward. We're not saying that, but we're saying that if you celebrate too much, that last reward might actually be your last reward.
0: Wow. <laughs> you say that knowledge is the new money, money. what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so um, I used to always, like, how do I get money? You know, and I made money to focus and quite honest, it escaped me. But when I realized that better is a book than a well-built house, better is a book than a well-built house, why? Because the elements, hurricane, tornado, whatever can destroy your home, but a book, which is knowledge you can never destroy. And I realized Eric, man, if you get knowledge, they can take everything you own and you can rebuild. But if all you have is stuff, once the stuff is gone, you can't recreate stuff by having stuff. But if you have wisdom and you have understanding and like you, you get certain things, you understand certain things, there's an industry that you understand Air, you can lose everything and you can rebuild it. So knowledge is the new money in that I I didn't know how to write a New York Times bestseller. I didn't have that information. I actually paid a coach who gave me the information. And people were like, are you dumb? You paid $30,000 for somebody to show you how to get on a New York Times? You could just go to Google. I was like, "I, I just need a human interaction. Like I need, but guess what I told somebody? Now that I have it, now I can charge somebody and teach somebody what it takes to get on a New York Times bestsellers list. Why? Because I have the knowledge now and I have the information. So that's what I mean by stuff. Doesn't necessarily mean if you lose it all, you can get it back. But with knowledge and information, you can rebuild anything you built and you can probably build it better. Why? Because you have the information. So every kid in school, I say, hey, I told a group of kids today I was at a school And I said, man, if I gave you a million dollars, but it was a million dollars in quarters, and I put those quarters all on the floor and told you you had to pick up those quarters, all of them to get that million dollars, what would you do? And they said, of course, we pick up every quarter to get that million dollars. I said, but here you are in the library and you haven't picked up one book. There's millions of dollars worth of information in each one of these books that can help you to become successful. Yet you walk past the library You never come in it, but if you were to come in here and read every one of these books and actually apply the information you got from this book, your life and your family's life would go to a whole other level. So you walk past knowledge, but you'd run toward money. That inflation or whatever it is, that money wouldn't even be what it was worth after you picked it up, not including Uncle Sam. But the knowledge that you have, you can build anything and create anything and design your life any way you want to create it once you have that information. Knowledge is the new money, get you
0: some. Eric, in 250 episodes, five years of this podcast, I've never once put someone on the spot, except for now. And so I'm gonna ask you the following question because you are a voracious reader. We share this in common. What are your top five favorite books? and one of them cannot be a Franklin Covey book because we would occupy many of the top spots of most people's, but beyond our seminal books, I'd like you to tell me what are, what are five of your favorite books? Not your not your top five, but what are your five favorite yeah, books? Yeah, no, no, no,
1: I got you. So of course the first one would be How to Win Friends and Influence People. Why? You know, I think at the end of the day, emotional intelligence is so important. And I've come across so many intelligent people who have hit a glass ceiling because they don't know how to deal with people. Okay. And so I, so I just believe how to win friends and influence people is hey, of course there are tasks that need to be done, but there are people that have something to do with those tasks. So if you can master tasks and people, then you're not gonna have a glass ceiling. Uh, my second one was Think and Grow Rich, and of course I've done both Napoleon Hill and I've done uh, Dennis Kimbrough. Uh, Think and Grow Rich, um, a black choice, right? Love both. of course. I love Dennis Kimbrose because uh, many of the characters in the book look like me. But but the reason why I love that one is because, and I know you, Scott, you've done this exercise before, but the one where they say, hey, you're in a room, no no windows, no. Uh, imagine you're in the room, no windows, no doors, no tools, nobody can help you. How do you get out? You know, and of course, the trick is you imagined yourself. It's an imaginary so, so imagine yourself out. And so that book taught me that you can think your way to anything you want in life. If your brain can think it, then either you or the people in your circle of influence have a way of helping you to create that. And that was important for me because as a victim, I thought as a victim. As a victor, I thought as a victor, mm-hmm. and I got both of the things that I thought and I wanted. Um, the other one, which is a great book to me, is The Greatest you know, salesman that ever lived, Ogmund you know, and I just loved the practical, you know, he said, hey, 90 days, do this every day, three times a day. And so the, I will persist, you know, and I will greet this day with love in my heart. I-, I needed that book because I had a lot of dreams and goals, but I didn't have a lot of steps, right? And I needed the steps. That book gave me like, hey, you do this for 90 days, you do this for 180 days, you do this for 360 days, and, and you mark the scrolls and you learn the scrolls and you live out the scrolls, everything is gonna be great. Um, the fourth book for me was Dennis Kimbrough's spinoff of Daily Motivation for African-American Success. And the reason why I love that was that was my first 365 day book. And and again, you are what you consume. And so if you're consuming uh, these thoughts, like you're literally consuming the characteristics some of the greatest people in the world. And as you're consuming it, you're developing yourself and becoming like them. And eventually you're gonna become like them. I thought it was funny when you said you should be, you should live here, here, here. Scott, that's a, that, that's a unique conversation. And it's a conversation that only certain people who've experienced America in a certain way would think. I remember when I bought my home in California, I remember the bank here, the lady said to me, Uh, Well, what are you going to do with your home in Michigan? I'm like, I'm not going to do nothing. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to buy the house next door for my parents and for my, and she couldn't, like, like, what are you doing with multiple homes? She just couldn't think that way, right? And then, of course, the final book, um, and again, it goes back to, you said don't mention these books, which a Speed of Trust would definitely be top one in there, but because I can't go there, um, John Maxwell's collection, but um, the most important minutes in a leader's day, Uh, And the reason why I thought that book was phenomenal was because the first time I had read a book with so much, so many gems in it and so much knowledge, but from a biblical base. And that every single chapter and every single page, you know, was, was wrapped in, consumed with biblical principles. And so it was a way of both of my worlds coming together. And I'm not suggesting that that does not ever happen, um, but a lot of times, you know, in certain environments, those two worlds don't collide. And so this was the first time I got an opportunity to have both of those worlds collide. So those are, like you said, many, many books. But those are five books that are key in my development. And again, you said don't say it, but, you know, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, um, The Road Less Travel, uh, you know, those those classics were some of the first books that people in business introduced me to. And by beholding, Scott, literally, I became changed.
0: Can I add one to your reading list? Please. So a friend of mine and a former guest here is a man named Robin Sharma. You know him, of course, as the author of the book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And uh, like you, he's a, a frequent speaker and coach. He wrote a book recently called The Everyday Hero Manifesto. Kind of an odd titled book. The Everyday Hero Manifesto. I'm going to buy that book and send it to you for the holidays. Please. Um, Look for that book to come your way shortly.
1: Okay. Thank
0: you. Uh, I'll have to chase all the homes you're moving to and where you're headed to find it, but I'll find you. I'll find you, sir. I'll find you. I'll just call up MJ. MJ will tell me where you are. Okay. 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 Last topic, sir. Uh, and this one kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I've heard it before, but I don't know, you know, it's like the student is ready when the teacher is there, or the teacher is ready when the student is there, whatever that thing I slaughtered. Whatever happens. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Well, so you were my teacher and I became ready. Now, everybody listen to this, because this is profound, and Eric's going to leave us in the next two minutes with some context. You ready, Eric? Yes,
1: sir.
0: Eric has no idea where I'm going. You must be willing to sacrifice what you are for what you will become. Riff on that. So let me
1: give it to you this way, guys. I, I had to give up, you know, being a victim. I had to give up, it's my mother's fault. Scott, what a place of comfort, knowing that you're homeless, you're a high school dropout, you're eating out of trash cans, your world is unraveling. What a comfort to know it's somebody else's fault, Scott. You know, what a comfort it is to know Yo, if my mom would have just not, you know, at 17, got pregnant with me. My father would have just been responsible. I wouldn't even be here. What a joy to know it's not, it has nothing to do with the choices that I've made. It has nothing to do with the words that are coming out of my mouth. It has nothing to do with my paradigm and my values. Poor me. It's my mom. It's my dad's father. What, what comfort in putting the responsibility on somebody else? I literally had to give up that person to potentially get to. It's like writing a book, in my writing coach, after all this sacrifice, told me, Well, you know, you may not make it to um, the New York Times bestseller. I'm like, What? Well, what are we doing this for? Like, what? what is this? Why do I gotta call you every day? Why do I have to explain to you uh, the, the, the way I'm doing things? It's like, uh, And so you sacrifice not even knowing. But it's like, y'all, I'm going to give up this victim mentality to see, meaning what? I'm going to say, I've got a good friend of mine who said, why do you always say it's your fault when sometimes it has nothing to do with you? I say, because if it's their fault, they have the power, they have the control. But when I say it's my fault, I have the power, I have the control. And so for me saying You're going to have to give up this victim mentality that has been your best friend, your blankie, you know, has, it's been your life. And you're going to have to sacrifice that for taking ownership. And we don't know where this is going to land us. We don't know where we're going to be. It's going going to be so painful to take responsibility to know that you're here because of the decisions you made. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. It's going to take you up years and years and years to get out of this hole. But sacrifice what you can be for what you are now. And I honestly have to tell that 22, 23-year-old, thank you so much for making me let go of that mindset and that mantra that it was everybody's fault but mine. And thank you for allowing me to take personal responsibility because had I stayed a victim, I would probably still be homeless, still be a high school dropout, maybe in prison, maybe dead, we'll never know. But because that kid at 23 decided to take full ownership and say, your mom's, it's not her fault, you're not 13 no more, it's not your dad's fault, he doesn't control your life anymore, it's your fault. And once I took ownership, man, so that's what I'm saying. Sacrifice even good to get to great. And I promise you, if you make the sacrifice for what you are now, for the future version of you, Man, you're gonna be happy and everybody around you will benefit from you making that sacrifice.
0: Uh, You and my journeys have nothing in common, right? White guy from a upper middle class family in central Florida, um, that was not you. Uh, Where we've ended is somewhat similar although you've sold more books and have more homes and have advanced degrees, so I'm definitely studying everything you're doing.
1: I don't know about Um, that, Scott. That's kind of,
0: you know. No, it's accurate. I'm not kind. It's accurate. I'm not actually kind. I'm just uh, generally accurate. Uh, I want to say a couple of things to all of our listeners and viewers. Buy this book. The book is extraordinary. I know nothing about movie recommendations. I'm not even so credible when it comes to parenting or relationships, but I'm pretty solid when it comes to recommending books. Look at the set behind me. It's a solid book. It's absolutely worth buying and maybe even buying for your kids because the maturity that you share about your journey with your um, stepfather in the beginning was really powerful. This book is worth reading just based on where Eric shows his vulnerability on how he treated his stepfather and treated his mom and what her intentions were versus how you were uh, manifesting them. I'll leave that there. Secondly, it's a very tender story about how you reacted and your family um, responded when your wife was diagnosed with MS. And it's a, it was a gripping story listening to you. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, so what would I do if that happened to my family? My wife happens to be a full-time stay-at-home mom and, and uh, it wouldn't have the same impact. Obviously, we don't wish my wife anything other than health, but You know, me as the primary survivor, what happened if, or primary provider, what happens if it happened to me? Would you talk about this concept of when someone is facing a challenge ahead, that they see it coming, they're not quite sure what's on the horizon, you did not expect the MS diagnosis with your wife, this is not a small issue, this was a life-changing issue for your family, what should they do? (laughs) What frame of mind should someone be in? Because the storm's coming for all of us. Whether it is a medical diagnosis, a financial setback, a nuclear war, losing your job, big or small, all of us are going to have some storm coming our way. I want you to send us off, not morose or fixated on that, but how do you prepare us for the coming storm in our life?
1: Yeah, never let a good crisis go to waste. Never let a good crisis go to waste. You know, don't be so consumed with the obvious that you don't see the blessing in it. And and again, it can be overwhelming. You know, the physicians, it's their job to say the worst. Didi, you may lose your sight. Uh, You may be bound to a wheelchair. You know, you may not uh, be able to control because these legions are on your brain. Your spine, you may not, the, the messages may not convey properly from your brain to your spine, to your hand, you know, you may, you may not, your gait may not be steady, you know, from an intimate standpoint, you know, from a working standpoint, like a lot of who you are right now, you may lose that. Your marriage may be different. You know, your parenting, uh, you can lose your short-term or long-term memory. That's a lot. You know, this, this, this was a, this was a major diagnosis, but, what I kept saying to myself was, never let a good crisis go to waste. The way you think about this, Eric, is just as critical as, as accurate it is. It's a, it's a reality. As far as the physicians are concerned, they've seen this play out. They've done their research. They have thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of cases, right, to, to base their um, diagnoses on. This is, They're not making this up. This isn't Something that's new. So, so it was overwhelming for both of us, but more so for my wife because my wife had it. And I had to explain to my wife in that moment, we, you can, you will, you must get through this. And so we created a mantra. I can, I will, I must. I can, I will, I must. You you can get through it. You will get through it. You must get through it. Your kids have not finished high school yet. They, they haven't finished college. They haven't gotten married. Like they need you. You need to be there for them. We're going to get through this. And I believe uh, she still has MS. <laughs> um, you know, when we do the MRI, nothing has changed. It hasn't progressed, but nothing has changed. But what has changed is the way I spoke about it. The, the way I embraced it. You know, I, Scott, I started telling my wife like, hey, well, at least we got eight dates a year. And she's like, what do you mean by that? I was like, well, you got to go to do an MRI twice a year. So we'll go for ice cream afterwards. We'll go to the mall if you want to. We'll go out for dinner. We'll turn it into a date. Got to go get your eyes checked twice a year. So we'll turn that into a date. You've got to go see your ne- neurologist twice a year. We'll turn it into a date. You know, so we, I, I just started trying to make it fun, you know, and start not just get so overwhelmed with the reality of a chronic illness and how it's going to change our lives. But it was like, hey, you know, you are um, you've lost your energy. You don't have like. 24 hours of energy anymore. So we'll turn a nap into something fun. We'll take a nap every day. We'll read a book before we take the nap. We'll wake up afterwards, you know, we'll sit at, sit down by the fireplace, we'll watch a favorite show. We've never really watched TV like that before, but it's like, hey, we're gonna take what the doctor turns into a tragedy and we're gonna turn it into a triumph, you know? And so I would just say, again, everybody is either out of a storm, out of it headed into one, In the midst of it or coming out of one, it's the the cycle of life. So it it doesn't matter what happens to us. It's how we respond to what happens to us that's most important. So again, never let a good crisis go uh, to waste.
0: Uh, Profound words from Dr. Eric Thomas. I think the most important thing I've ever heard in my life is life is ten percent what happens to you and ninety percent how you respond to it. Eric Thomas is in the house today on leadership. You o u you. ignite your power, your purpose, and your why. Managed to scrounge up some endorsements from Chris Paul, Michael Jordan, Dion Sanders, and Ed Milette. Ed Milette, by the way, is one of my favorite interviews of all time. Been twice on this podcast. Eric Thomas, happy holidays to you. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, thank you so
0: much for having me on. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.